1, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And I'm going to assume this morning that this is a safe place where I can share some stuff. And what is said here stays here, right? I feel like I should have you raise your right hand and promise, because uh, you got a Bible in front of you. Well, here's the reason why I need it to be a safe place, because uh, last night I sat with uh, a fire roaring in our fireplace watching a chick flick with my wife. And uh, not only was it a chick flick, it wasn't like the notebook and just make you cry kind of moment, uh, but it was the movie was um, a classic from 2006, Last Holiday. Anybody see it? Queen Latifah? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it, normally I, I avoid those. I'm usually more of a private uh, Benjamin, you know, saving private Benjamin kind of guy, you know, war guts than this. Um, is it private Benjamin? Private, right? Private Benjamin, too. Just go with it, would you? Why you got to be so critical? Not a safe place at all, huh? Testing you. Uh, but normally I'm one of those, you know, World War II, World War One, you know, Cowboys, Indians. But this was one that for some reason sucked me in. Um, and it was basically Queen Latifah uh, went into the hospital and um, Dr. Gupta um, misdiagnosed her because of, of a CAT scan. And she had some disease that where the end of her life was coming. And it was eminent, and she only had a short time to live. And therefore, she decided that she was going to live out all the possibilities, the things that she dreamed of, and she lived extravagantly. She, she went on this huge vacation in this uh, hotel where it cost $4,000 a night. I know some of you, that's like petty cash. But, you know, she went to this hotel, lived this extravagant life with these huge plush pillows and this bed, and she ate all the best food. She got massages all the time. She built new friendships, and she just really discovered what life was really about. And you watch this woman uh, working this menial kind of job all of a sudden discover who she is. And she just lived extravagantly. She lived with, for once probably, with purpose. Knowing that the end is near. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, a part of scripture that um, makes me wonder that if we as the people of God or as the church would ever really think that the end might be near, how would we live in what we know about God. How would we live differently? How would we, would we live extravagant lives? Would we talk more openly about our faith? Would we live in faith knowing that God will provide or that God is able to provide, that God is able to heal? Would we live differently? Would we live differently? And this morning, we are, we're going to be looking at um, Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is coming down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon. And when about 1998, I had the privilege of traveling with, uh, for free to Italy, Austria, and Hungary for 21 days. For free. The only thing I had to bring is like my own uh, spending money and pay for my, my passport. But there was a price to be paid in another way. I traveled with 30 high school students. And so it takes it out of your hide in a totally different way. But I got to travel, and probably one of the biggest highlights was traveling uh, to Rome. How many of you have ever been to Rome? One, a couple of us have been to Rome. 
It is an, a magnificent thing. The history that all comes together, the art, the building, the architecture is just absolutely beautiful. Well, when we were in Rome, we spent a whole day in Vatican City, which is a state to itself. And, um, of course, going to Vatican City, you have to see St. Peter's, right? It is amazing. Gaudy? Over the top? Yeah, Amazing. The architecture, the art. When you walk into St. Peter's Cathedral, the basilica is just absolutely amazing. You know, they have in the center aisle all these markers of uh, what churches could fit inside of St. Pete's. And it's just like, seriously? This is ginormous. And then these huge gold uh, gilded kind of columns and everything is just amazing. Um, But... A neat thing for me was we were able to go to the Vatican Gallery. And the Vatican Gallery is a totally different place where you walk in and you are able to see art that has the church has been able to gather over the years. And one of the pieces that caught my attention, and as I was researching, getting ready for this, was uh, Raphael's last painting. Um, and, you know, since we're kind of a semi-artsy-fartsy, Group, does anybody know what the last, his last painting was? The Transfiguration. Amazing, amazing piece of art. Craig, why don't you pop it up? This, sorry for the bad lighting, yada, yada. But as you can see, up on the top, you've got Jesus up there and he's just transfigured. He's just glowing. And on, on the left, you've got Elijah. And on the right, you can see this is Moses, obviously, balding on top. And he had some rough time with children of Israel walking around for 40 years. But he's got the, the law in his hand. And then you've got down here Peter, James, and John. They, their eyes are just blinded. And they're just blown away by Jesus unveiling his, his pre-human glory. He's just shining. It's just this amazing thing. And then all of a sudden you kind of come down the mountain. And there's this group of people that are just in turmoil. They're just all over each other. They're on each other. There's fingers pointing and there's stuff going on and there's a lot of tension. And this is a huge piece of art. It is just absolutely beautiful. But there's a lot of attention in this bottom right hand corner of a, of a young boy. His eyes kind of rolled back in his head and everybody is just pointing a little attention given to him, but there's this fight that's going on. And that's where we're going to be looking today. Is what is going on is, is Christ and the three disciples are coming off the hill, off this mountaintop experience to the real world. And it had something to say for us as a church of what what is life supposed to be like when we don't have these mountaintop experiences all of our life. So read along with me. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, that's Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, 
I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able to. And he answered them, Faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the, uh, his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And he entered, and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Peter, James, and John had to be just in this, uh, this moment. It's like coming back from a, a high school camping experience with your church and it's just like, oh man, this is just great. We just saw Jesus. They were having this discussion. It's like, wow, Jesus, you were like glowing. And there was Elijah and there was Moses. What was going on? What did you guys talk about? What, what, what was going on? This is just great. We saw these guys. They were dead for uh, hundreds of years and maybe they were there. And I said this, you said that and all this. And they were just excited. And then they came down. To a mess. To a mess. And sometimes as, as I go through my, you know, many people kind of look at pastors as the professional Christians. And because that's what I do all my days. You know, I'm paid to be this professional Christian. Um. But in this, in this ministry life, I just have sometimes these, these sweet moments like you, where it's just like, man, it was, there was, there, no words can describe what I had with Jesus in these moments. It's just like, oh, man, I love this. This is great. But then all of a sudden, you just open a door, and it's like, are you serious? You're fighting over what? You're fighting over this? There's this kind of battle going on in the church or this kind of battle going on outside the church and you were, we're majoring in the minors. 
Shouldn't we be majoring on the major and majoring on Jesus and keeping that primary? That's where it's at. But somehow we get caught up in this fighting and this, or even as a church, somehow we lose our, our potency. And I dare even say that the church becomes impotent, unable to grow, unable to reproduce, unable to do anything viable. Because we've been so locked into stuff or fighting that goes on that nothing happens. Just fighting. And that's what the disciples and Jesus come down. They come down the hill and immediately the first thing that they see is a great crowd. And they see, hey Craig, can you throw up that uh, picture again? And what do they see? They see fingers pointing back and forth at each other. And it's like, come on, look. And the, the scribes are on one side. And the disciples are on the other side. They're going back and forth. And you've got a couple of the disciples who are pointing and saying, well, the only answer is obviously Jesus. And the rest of them are going, come on, we've got to do this. Let's try another exorcism. Let's try this. It worked before. And well, the scribes, the scribes, had this mentality. And it is a true mentality. And it's kind of this saying that says, the messenger is as the man himself. So basically, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are as Jesus himself. And that's true for the church today as well. You call yourself a Christ follower, a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, whatever you want to call yourself, but you love Jesus, you've given your life, you recognize the work that He's done on the cross for you, you are as the man Himself. That's not saying that you're Jesus. But as His messenger, you carry His authority. You carry His life with you. That resurrection power with you. And the scribes are saying, Dude, the Father came to you to cast out this demon. You're, the messenger is the man himself. And look, you can't do it. It's impossible. You, you guys, maybe what you should do is this. Maybe you should try this instead. And they were going back and forth. There was this, this heated debate. And the disciples are probably going, what the snot? Not too, too long before. Probably about a week before. I believe it's in Mark chapter 4. Uh, Mark chapter 3, if I remember my research, Jesus had just sent out the disciples and said, listen, you are going in my name. And with you, you receive all my power and authority. And you are going to be able to cast out demons in my name. And sure enough, they went out. And they cast out demons. They came back and just, Jesus, listen, this is absolutely amazing. You're right. When we do this in your name and your power, all these things happen. The demons flee. This happens. All this thing is, things are going on and sweet. And now the disciples are going, it's not working. What we've been doing isn't working. We've done the same thing. And this one is sticking. This one is not coming out. So the question for us is, what is that saying? Why, why, why did that one not come out? Now, we've got this brief little epilogue at the end of Mark 14, uh, 28, 29 that Jesus explains to him why. But what is the reason? What happened to these disciples? 
What, what took place in their life where at one time they carried with them the mantle of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus. And as we look at us, the church, the church universal, the church local, the church at Peace Community Church, the church at Grace Fellowship Church, the church Parkview, the church Missio Dei Church. Are we like these disciples where something is just missing? Where at one time, and I can remember back when we started Missio Day about two years ago, where there was just this excitement, this, oh my gosh, this is sweet. I just love this ministry thing. We're seeing people's lives change. We're seeing uh, values being shifted around to line up with Scripture. And we're seeing all this. But then we kind of get to this point where we're doing church. And there's no longer this power that's in it. So the question is, what has changed? And the, the thing is, is that there is a world that is starving, dying for healing, dying for wholeness. And we can see it in, in this father. This father, you know, Jesus called him out and said, bring this little boy to me. And the father says, you know, let me tell you about my little boy. He's mute. This happens to him and this happens to him. And he just becomes this little rigid board of a boy that is just foaming at the mouth. If you could do anything, would you have compassion on us and do something, Jesus? Please, if you can do something. So there's this world outside of us and there's this group of us even here who are just starving for that healing touch of Jesus saying, if you can do anything... Please, if you can do anything, would you have compassion and do something? Because I've tried it with your church, I've tried it with your people, and nothing is happening. And there's this world that is just saying, I need a healing touch. And you can just even see how this father was in, in Matthew, in Matthew's version of it. It says that the father got on his knees begging Jesus. Just begging, Jesus, come on, down in front of him as, as a servant to a master. Jesus, do something. Luke, in his gospel, says, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. There's deep pain in this father just saying, listen, he's broken. He's broken, and I can't control it. Would you do something? I've heard of your stories. I've heard of what you are able to do. Would you do something, Jesus? I've come here hoping that your disciples would be able to do something, but they can't. There's this certain impotency about them. So, Jesus, can you do something? There's something to be learned about, about Satan. Satan is at war with the image of God. If there's one thing that Satan has, it's the very thought of God. And as his children, as human beings, we are image bearers of God. We reflect God. He created us in his image. And Satan will do anything to distort that image. He'll do anything. 
He'll twist our minds. He'll twist our values. He'll twist anything. And these attacks on these boys just show how radical and real the struggle is between God, the giver of life, and Satan, the destroyer of life. And this this beautiful story here in Mark describes Jesus' diagnosis of the problem and it gives us the action in both His words and His deeds. The answer which we, as the church, need as much, if not more, than those disciples. Jesus' initial response was a cry from His heart. It broke Jesus' heart. And if you look in, in chapter 9, again, it's, Jesus says in verse 19, He, he answered them, Oh, Faithless generation. Oh, can you hear it? Faithless generation. How long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to teach and show you and teach and show you and teach and show you and teach? Oh, you faithless generation. How long do I have to bear with you? Jesus is just addressing them directly and saying, listen, probably more to the disciples than to the rest of the crowd, saying, guys, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Jesus is just in this lonely pain. And and because His twelve disciples, whom He had early commissioned to go out and preach, And to drive out demons, they had failed. His pain was even deeper. Their their failure probably was not because they didn't try. And this is where it comes into church. It was probably not because they didn't try. Because I am absolutely sure that they, they tried their best. I'm I'm willing to sure be, be sure that you know Nathaniel maybe he was the, the head one down there you know trying to cast out this demon he probably changed the wording around three or four or five or ten different times you know maybe he was part of the emerging church at that time maybe he lit some candles and you know kind of sang some old songs and had a kumbaya moment no nope, that's not working maybe we need to change up and do some faster songs maybe that'll cast it out maybe maybe we should try something different maybe a different version of the Bible. Maybe we can try this a little bit different. Maybe we can do something a little bit more contemporary. No, that's not working. Maybe we should try something a little bit more old school. Can you see it in the church? It's not working. Well, let's try this. Well, that's not working. Let's try this. That's not working. So they were probably doing their absolute best. But the real problem wasn't that they were not trying. It was their unbelief. They believed in the process. They believed in themselves because they had done it previously. But they were not resting their faith in Jesus. They were resting in their ability to do what they had done before. But their eyes were no longer fixed on the primary thing. And that was Jesus. 
They got caught up into methods and programs and things instead of on Jesus and Jesus alone. And these, I think, are just really fitting words for the church today. Because if you really think about it, even in this economy, the American church is so well equipped. Aren't we? We've got all the stuff. We even got, we've got a thousand, two, three thousand dollar projector that throws up these really cool, sexy things up here. We've got a whole soundboard back there. We've got children's ministry on cards. We've got all these things going on. We, we are so well equipped. We're even rich. Some of you are going, well, what are you talking about? I'm in college. You're rich compared to the rest of the world. You are financially rich. We, we as a church have so much resources. We are so well instructed compared to third world countries which have the gospel just coming to them. We have so much information. We, it's just overflowing. It's packing our head full of stuff and facts. And so we cannot and dare not duck Jesus' diagnosis that something is wrong. And if we don't listen, we as a local body and we as the global church, the universal church, will grow more and more impotent, powerless. Jesus did something with the Father. He raised the Father's level of faith. He first said, bring the boy to me. So they brought him to him. Jesus said, bring him to me. Bring the child to who? Me. Bring that little boy who is convulsing to me. To the Savior. The one who formed him in his mother's womb. Knit him together beautifully. Bring that one to me. And when this spirit, if you got any kind of Greek, which I'm sure most of you are going, what are you talking about? But in the original language, when the spirit saw Jesus, what goes on in the Greek is just graphic. It is, it's the tense that talks about how it happened over and over and over and over and over and over. So this little boy... They brought the little boy to him. All of a sudden, the spirit within him sees Jesus, who's going, oh dang, I know who this is. And immediately, he started rolling around on the ground, foaming at his mouth, foaming at his mouth, foaming at his mouth. And he, his eyes more than likely rolled back. He became rigid and just, this, it constantly happened. So before Jesus, and then Jesus asked the father the question, How long has this been going on? And as a father, I can identify with him. Father probably broke down at that point. He goes, ever since a little boy. Let me tell you about what he's done. This spirit will throw him towards the fire. He'll throw him in the water. So we've got to constantly be watching him. It's the scariest thing. We don't know who he is sometimes. Something is going on just terribly. And, And this father is watching his little boy rolling around on the ground. And Jesus said, tell me about it. Jesus allows the father to unload. Tell me about your son. Let me hear your story. And finally, 
the Father says, Listen, Jesus. I know who you are. I've heard about you. If you can do anything, anything, have compassion. And this was just the annex, the precursor of a fuller faith. It was the baby faith saying, I know who you are. If you can do anything, Jesus, would you do anything? And Jesus goes, hold on. Stop there. If you can. Did you just say, if you can? All things are possible to those who believe. Now this is probably one of the most destroyed verses you'll see in different branches of Christianity. Well, if you just have enough faith, God has to do it. If you muster enough faith and believe enough, God is going to have to respond to that. That's a bunch of hooey. That makes it a man-centered religion, a man-controlled religion, as opposed to a God who is sovereign over all, who knows what is best for you. But God, Jesus in this case is saying, listen, I want to focus in because I've got something for you. And it's beautiful. It's health and wholeness for your son. But you need to believe in me. You need to believe in my ability to heal and to bring whole salvation whole healing of mind, body, spirit. I have that ability and it's, it's here. I've got it. But do you believe? Because all things are possible for that boy if you believe. And this father had to make a decision. A step in faith. And even in James chapter 5, 14 and 15, James, the stepbrother of Jesus, is addressing the church and saying, listen, if there's any of you who are sick among you, if any of you are sick, you need to take a step of faith. And you need to, you need to call upon the elders who lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, for the prayers of a righteous man are good. You need to have faith. Now, that's not saying that if I have enough faith and, uh, you know, my leg is broken or severed, that all of a sudden it'll grow back. Because there are times where the Spirit is prompting us and saying, I have something for you so that you can give glory to God. You can give glory to God, but you have to have faith that it's available. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, listen, I've got something for you. Now comes probably one of the most great responses of Scripture. The Father says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Here is finally an honest man. An honest man, probably one of the most 
transparent declarations of Scripture. His faith was trembling. His faith is imperfect, but his faith is real. I believe. But help my unbelief. I believe that you are possible. This is possible. And I gotta be honest, there's still this part of me that doesn't, doesn't know. And a faith which public, declares itself publicly. And at the same time recognizes its weaknesses. And pleads for help. Is a real faith. And this has got to be encouragement for us all. And here's a couple questions that we've, got to, that we've got to wrestle with. First of all, do we believe... Craig, could you throw them up there for me? Do we believe that God can do anything? Seriously, do you believe that God can do anything? Or put it another way, do you believe in the God the Scriptures describe? Do you believe that, that there is a God of the universe who is able to part the seas so that His people can walk through. Do you believe that was a myth or do you believe that is a real God? Do you believe that there is this God who is able to... You fill in the blank. Read the stories of Scripture. Do you believe that that God is actually there? Or is your man-made ways your ways of doing things far more powerful than God's. Second, do you believe that He will do what He has promised to do? Scripture says that He who began a good work in you will be... What? Anybody know? Faithful to complete it. Whatever that is. It doesn't mean miraculous healing. And you know what? We, we could pray for Reveille till the sun comes down, goes down, till we're blue in the face. We could pray prayer meeting after prayer meeting and God can go, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to complete that little girl in my way so that I get the most glory. Paul prayed Lord, take away this thorn. And God goes, no, you know what? I'm not going to take that out of your life because through that, you will give me glory. But I'm going to be faithful to complete you in my way so that you give the most glory to me. But the thing is, do we trust that God is able to to complete us in whatever way? The beautiful thing is that Jesus addressed that demon and it was gone. The image of God was restored. Luke says that all the people were all amazed at the greatness of God. I believe that power comes to the church when there is faith. But there's something more that has to be said. And that's why Mark concludes in this section with 28 and 29. Listen to it again. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, can you see him? They're just in awe of what just happened. It's like, holy snot. Will you see just what happened? 
And they gather in the house and go, okay, give us the trade secret. What'd you do differently? What'd you do? And Jesus says, listen, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They were self-deceived into somehow thinking that the gift they received to exercise that demon was under their own control, their own power, and could, could be exercised at their will. But the reality is, they did not even think to pray. They did not think to pray. They had forgot, forgotten that there had to be this radical dependence if God's power was to course through their lives. This radical dependence on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not on programs, not on money, not on finances, not on budgets, not on slick pastors, not on people who can teach you really good tricks with a Bible memory, not that kind of stuff. There had to be this radical dependence on Jesus Christ through prayer. So if this church is ever depending on me, And if you're here just because you like me, you're missing it already. If you're, if you're here because you like the music style or you got some good friends here, you're missing it. There has got, we have got to have this radical dependence on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not on Paul Vroom. Not on because it's new or it's not in the big church kind of thing. But we have got to have this radical dependence on Jesus. And that, when we have total faith, when we are communing with Jesus in prayer and in ministry and cooperating with His Spirit, going where the Spirit goes and cooperating there and doing what He says, being faithful and listening in prayer, that is when the church will be its most powerful. That is when we will see healings here, where we will see new life. And we, we can't explain what's going on because it wasn't what I did. I don't know. We just prayed. We trusted God. And God did something amazing. I, have no, I never calculated that to happen. That's beautiful. There's this beautiful picture of the transfiguration. Jesus glorified. Jesus at the apex of all that's going on. Disciples pointing. Say, that's that's Jesus. He'll answer it. When the church cooperates with Jesus. Amazing things will happen. And maybe like Queen Latifah. Back to the chick flick. Maybe if we live in a kind of radical way. Like she did. Of not knowing what the end is going to be like. But it's eminent. Maybe when we start living that way, we as the church 
will experience revival and health and growth and power like we've never seen before. It's about a people of radical dependence on Jesus Christ. People who live in this sweet communion with God, who are just hardwired in, who have this resurrection power coursing through their lives. That's my dream for us, this local group of people who just constantly are worshiping Jesus are praying like we believe that he will he is able to move that's my hope and i hope it's yours let's pray jesus i thank you that we have words of scripture of you saying oh faithless generation because that's us today God we ask this morning that you help our unbelief so God I believe that those of us who have believe in, the, believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that You are Lord, Lord, we have tasted something wonderful about You. And we remember what it is like to really be communing with You. To have those mountaintop experiences of seeing just a glimpse of Your glory. But God, we can confess like that, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I pray this morning that our unbelief will be whittled away. That we will be people of great faith and great trust. Placing our, our full hope and trust in You. Not in doctrine and not in slick pastors, not in PowerPoints or uh, musical styles or whatever, or denominations. God, may we be fixed on You. The One who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Who says that You will be faithful to complete us. God, I thank You for who You are that you are still working deeply in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.